Today on Something You Should Know, when you go to the movies, what's the best seat in the house? I'll tell you that. Plus, we often avoid taking the blame when things go wrong. But maybe we should. We try to avoid blame because we believe that we will be more credible and reliable and trustworthy if we didn't make these mistakes. But the truth is, not owning the mistakes is what makes us untrustworthy and unreliable and uncredible. Also, are you more likely to get struck by lightning if you're holding an umbrella? And where do our Halloween customs come from, like trick-or-treating? People think that trick-or-treat is very old. I hear this um, misconception a lot that it goes back to ancient Celtic practices, that the Druids dressed up. No, it really is less than 100 years old. It uh, began as an American custom. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works? And so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. So I just got finished moving, which has been, <laughs> which has been a sometimes grueling event over the past month. And I'm sure if you've ever moved, you know what I mean about the stress of moving. But now I finally feel like I, I'm in my new home and feel like it is home and things are getting back to normal again. So much so that I, I went out to the movies the other night and it, it got me to thinking, is there really a best seat in the house in the movie theater? I know people have preferences. Some people like to sit close. Some people like to sit back. But is there objectively a best seat in the house? Well, yes, according to the THX director of global technology. While a theater is being built, the sound is calibrated by taking microphone measurements. And while the goal is to make the experience the best for every seat in the house, the closer you can get to where they tested, the better your seat will be. And the seat where the microphones are placed is typically in the center of the row, about two-thirds of the way back from the screen. This is, essentially, the best seat in the house. If that seat's taken, you're advised to fan out to a center seat closer to the screen. In other words, move forward in the theater, not back. The closer you are, the more you increase your horizontal viewing angle. 
In other words, the screen fills up your field of vision the closer you get. Of course, you can get too close, and you know that if you've ever had to sit in the front row because all the other seats were sold out, that the front row, it fills up so much of your field of vision that it can be hard to watch. And that is something you should know. My first guest today is someone I spoke with some years ago, and many of the things that he said to me back then I remembered and found fascinating, useful, and liberating. One of the things he talks about is that so often we do things or we don't do things because we fear the feeling it will create inside us. It will make us uncomfortable, which is in many cases not a good reason to do something or not do something. This is really powerful stuff and it's, it, it's really hard to explain in the abstract. So let's get specific with my guest, Peter Bregman. Peter is a consultant and highly sought-after speaker. He's the CEO of a consulting firm called Bregman Partners, and he's author of several books, one of which is called Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Replace Counterproductive Habits with Ones That Really Work. Hi, Peter. Welcome. It's great to have you on Something You Should Know. Uh, Thanks so much. It's really nice to be here, Mike. So let me ask you to start by talking about what I was saying in the intro about how we do things or don't do things for fear of the way it might make us feel. One of the ways I like to think about this is think about a conversation that you're not having, an important conversation you know you should have, right? But you're not having. Can you think of one? Sure. You don't have to tell me what it is. Now consider why you're not having it. And I am willing to bet that you know everything you need to know in order to have this conversation. I bet you're perfectly skilled at having the conversation. And I bet you have had time and opportunity. And those are the things that we usually solve for when we're trying to act, right? As we solve for knowledge, I need to know something, or I need to develop a skill. Or... But those are not the things that get in our way. The things that stop us from moving forward, what's preventing you from having this difficult conversation is there's something you don't want to feel. That if you have that hard conversation, you might have to feel uh, shame or anger, or you might have to feel that you're hurting someone, or they might come back at you and you might feel their defensiveness or your own defensiveness or that weird passive aggressiveness that comes after a difficult conversation. And because you don't want to feel all of that stuff, you don't want to feel it, then you don't do the thing that would make you feel it. So you don't have the hard conversation. And if you are willing to feel everything, and this is what emotional courage is, the courage to feel, if you're willing to feel the anger and the hurt and the passive aggressiveness and the defensiveness, and if you're willing to feel everything, then you can do anything. Then nothing stops you from moving forward. So leading with emotional courage is about starting off with emotional courage. You know, like what's your, well, you know, you're you're jumping off the first foot of I am willing to feel everything, and then nothing can stop you. Well, the the reason people typically don't want to feel those things, yes, we don't want to feel those things, but we also don't necessarily want the outcome that comes from feeling those things, that, you know, the relationship may end, you might get fired, you... It's not just the feeling, it's the outcome from the the conversation. Well, and what I would say is our fear is not the outcome, but how we will feel if we have that outcome. And here's the problem. The problem is that we make ourselves very small because we are so afraid of any number of things that we might feel. 
And almost anybody who goes through all of the things you're afraid of will tell you it's worth it on the other side. But because we're afraid of those things, we get smaller and smaller and smaller and we take fewer and fewer actions. So because I'm afraid of what it might feel like to fail, I don't take a risk. Because I'm afraid of what it might feel like to be rejected, then I don't reach out and try to connect with you. And as a result, I'm getting smaller and smaller. And so, yeah, I'm afraid of the consequence. The consequence of my reaching out and connecting with you is that you might reject me and that would feel terrible. The consequence of my reaching out to you is you might actually accept me and then I might have to show up and I don't know how that would feel. Or you might connect with me and then abandon me and I don't want to feel that. And so there's all these reasons to not reach out and connect, all of them having to do with things I don't want to feel. But ultimately what I long for is the feeling of connection. And I'm not going to get that unless I risk feeling rejection and abandonment. And it's why we often don't get the things that we most long for, because we long for things that are risky for us. Because on the other side of getting the feeling that we want is the risk of getting a ton of feelings we don't want. Does that make sense? Sure. One of the things I remember you talking about, it's also the title of one of your books, is about four seconds. And I think this is some of the best advice people could ever get uh, so talk about four seconds and, and four seconds that really could change your life. Yeah, that we act habitually in our lives. We are often moving uh, very fast and we are responding or reacting out of our amygdala, the emotional center of our brain, as opposed to the neocortex, which is the sort of thinking part of our brain. And, and so we, we react. So you yell at me and I yell back. And we have often very counterproductive habitual responses. And, and they don't work. Like if you yell at me, yelling back is probably in at least 80% of the cases the wrong thing to do. But it might be what I'm habitually responding to do because, by the way, there's a reason, like given the conversation we just had about feeling, which is if you yell at me, I feel small and vulnerable and at risk. And if I yell back, I feel strong and powerful and, and in control. And so I'm going to do that as a gut reaction, even though it might get me the exact opposite outcome that I'm trying to get to. And four seconds is about slowing down your response just by a moment, literally by four seconds. In fact, you really only need a second or two to subvert an unproductive reaction. And it's four seconds to breathe and to subvert our immediate response and to ask one particular question, which is what I think is really important is what is the outcome I want in this situation? It's very counterintuitive because I wouldn't be reacting if not for the past, right? But I'm suggesting that we ask the question about the future and react to the past by invoking a future that we want to create. So it's, counterprodu- it's counterintuitive because, again, I wouldn't have to react if not for the past uh, that catalyzed my action, but I'm in effect asking us to react to the future instead of react to the past, right? And to ask the question, what is the outcome I want? And then to make a choice about how to act based on that outcome, based on the future you want to create. Why is that so hard to do? Well, because we're in the heat of the moment. I mean, uh, Dan Ariely, uh, who wrote Predictably Irrational and a bunch of other books, and uh, he's done some super interesting research And the bottom line of that research is um, in the heat of the moment, 
we do things we would rather not have done. And here's one way that I think about it. If you, if you go to a buffet and you're in the moment at the buffet and there's, you know, a, a, a ton of great food there, what is the likelihood that you're going to overeat? And for most of us, it's pretty high, right? And that is because um, in the face of unlimited options, we often make poor choices. And here's the big difference, which is the food I want to eat in the moment is different than the food I want to have eaten by the end of the day. So I look back at the end of the day and go, wow, I wish I really didn't have that brownie ice cream cake. But in the moment, I really wanted it. So that's why we often make poor choices is because in the moment, I want to regain my ground. And if you yell at me, I'm going to yell back. Or in the moment, I might want to watch a YouTube video of a kitten instead of working on this hard writing problem I have, right? So in the moment, I want to do something that is different than what I want to have done by the end of the day. And I tend to prioritize my present self over my future self. So, you know, that's natural. And it's why we often make poor choices in, in the heat of the moment. And we need to subvert those choices. We need to create just a little bit, just enough distance between ourselves and the moment in order to say, what is the choice that would really serve me in the long term? Yeah. Uh, Peter Bregman is my guest. He is a consultant and he's author of the book, Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Replace Counterproductive Habits with Ones That Really Work. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Peter, another thing I remember you saying some time ago that stuck with me, that's very counterintuitive, and that is this idea of the benefits of assuming the blame. Because we so often don't want to take the blame for fear that if we're blamed for something, that that will have dire consequences, depending on the situation, when in fact that tends not to happen. So talk, so talk about that. It's a very intuitive thing to avoid the blame. Uh, I, I walked into the kitchen and I saw my son, who was 10 at the time, and he had chocolate literally all over his face. Well, I don't know how he got it on his forehead, but it was all over. It was really all over his face. <laughs> And, and I walk into the kitchen and he looks at me and I don't say anything. He just looks at me and he says, I didn't eat any chocolate. And, and it's like, it's that intuitive. And I, I said to him, you know, go in the bathroom, look in the mirror, look at your face and then come back and tell me the same thing. And he goes in to the bathroom, comes back out, you know, 30 seconds later, sparkling clean face. And he said, I didn't eat any chocolate. 
And, and, you know, the truth is like, I didn't blame him for eating chocolate, but he knew he had done something that he believed I would not want him to do. And the immediate response to that is to try to avoid blame. And here's the thing about avoiding blame. You are the only one who you think you're fooling because everybody else knows when I sit in a meeting and everybody's going around blaming everybody else for problems that they think they're doing that because they think it will make them more trustworthy and reliable if they are not at fault. Right. So we try to avoid blame because we believe that we will be more credible and reliable and trustworthy if we didn't make these mistakes. But the truth is not owning the mistakes is what makes us untrustworthy and unreliable and uncredible. And as soon as we say, Hey, I did this. Let me tell you what I'm going to do to fix it. That is the moment that we become trustworthy and credible and reliable. But we're afraid of that moment. And we're afraid of that moment from like the time when we were three years old and we got in trouble for, you know, our hand in the cookie jar. So it's actually a very human response and fear and, uh, and very ineffective. To the point you think where maybe even taking the blame for something that wasn't your fault is a good idea? Um, I think you should, no, I don't think you should make stuff up. I think what you should do is own everything you can possibly own. So almost always, you know, nothing's all your fault and probably there are ways in which you contributed. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, uh, I mean, I don't know what examples to use here, but, but I would say that, you know, oftentimes we err on the side of not owning things if we can get away with it. And what I would say is you're almost better off. You're almost always better off saying, Hey, you know what? I played a part in that. Let me tell you the part that I can see that I, I played in and uh, how I would do it differently. Everything you talk about seems so counterintuitive than, than what we believe or what we've somehow come to believe or we've been taught or we've experienced. And, and what else falls into that category uh, of things you talk about that, that really kind of gets you to think, well, wait, wait a minute, maybe I need to rethink how I'm approaching everything. You know, it's sort of an interesting question because I don't think of... I mean, I think a lot of the stuff I talk about turns out to be counterintuitive, um, but I don't think of it in those terms so much. I think, I think we tend to act in ways that we are habitually trained to act um, that have worked for us in the past. You know, a friend of mine, and I don't know if he's been on your show or not, but Marshall Goldsmith, who oh, I like sure. a lot, yeah, uh, who wrote What Got You Here Won't Get You There. I love the title of that book. Because it's very, very true. There are so many things that have actually helped us to get to where we are. And I mean this, like big picture and little picture. Like there's a way in which I continue to act as if I'm trying to survive the Holocaust. Right? My mother was in the Holocaust. A family that was in the Holocaust beyond her. And there's a way in which that's ingrained in me. And there's ways in which I continue to act in that way. So I'm not as generous as I could be, or I, I hold on to things a little bit tighter and I don't trust as much as I'd like to trust either myself or other people. And I could see that. And those things actually served us as a family, you know, 70 years ago. But now 
it doesn't really serve me so much, but it's very hard to let it go. And that's everything from, you know, a, a certain scrappiness I might feel like I have to have in order to succeed to, you know, to these bigger things. Like, you know, like what, like, hey, I'll give you another example. I see this all the time. People succeed in organizations when they're more junior as individual contributors. That's how we get really successful because you ask me to do something and I deliver and I do it and I'm capable and I deliver it. And, you know, I might not do it totally on my own because people talk a lot about teams, but ultimately I need to know what I'm responsible for and I need to be able to deliver on it. And that makes me successful as a junior person. It makes every one of us successful as a junior person. Suddenly we're in leadership roles and it's, it's like continuing to do everything ourselves, even to an excellent degree, you know, to an excellent standard will uh, lead us to fail. So we have to shift how we're approaching the way we show up in the world. And we have to literally move away from what has made us incredibly successful in the past in order to meet the particular uh, needs of the time right now. And that's challenging. Uh, it's counterintuitive. But, you know, it's counterintuitive because the intuition is to do what's, what's you know, been successful for us in the past. Uh, what I try to do, to the extent that I tend to be counterintuitive in, in some of the uh, suggestions that I make, it's because I really try to look at saying not what has worked for me in the past, but I, I tend to be wary of what has worked for me in the past in order to look towards what might work for me in the future and what might work for my future me as opposed to my past me. And that's not a particularly intuitive way of acting, but it's one that works much more successfully. So you came up with a strategy and, and a book called 18 Minutes that deals with the problem of not getting the things done that you want to get done. And, and so talk about that strategy. Um, 18 minutes is a process. And I, and I wrote 18 minutes because I was having a hard time getting my most important work done. And I would have these days where I um, worked nonstop. And then at the end of the day, I would say I was busy all day, but I didn't get my most important work done. And I think a lot of people were having the same feeling. And I read a whole bunch of books on time management to try to address that. And what I found is that they all were based on the same myth of time management, which is that if I only follow someone's process or label files a certain way or, you know, follow this timeline, I would get everything done. And the truth is, I'm not going to get everything done. That I and 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 that myth leads us to sort of overwhelm and counterproductivity. That the truth is I have to be strategic and intentional about what I do and what I don't do. And the don't do part is really important, meaning I've got to make decisions. I've got to use my calendar as my working to-do list, not my to-do list that is serves to intake, you know, everything that has to be done. And I've got stuff on there that's been on there for six months. Like that's not my working document. My working document is my calendar because my calendar has limited time and space in it. And I've, it forces me to make choices about where I'm going to spend my time. So the 18 minute process itself is actually, you know, kind of riffing off of everything we've been talking about. The first five minutes of the day is to look at, I, I keep a certain kind of to-do list. It's called a six-box to-do list. But to look at it and ask myself the question, what are the most important things to achieve today that are on this list? And I've got to then, in the first five minutes of my day, take things off of my to-do list and literally 
put them on my calendar. And if I've got no space on my calendar because everything's already filled up, I still have to ask that question. Is this where I should be spending my time? Am I going to get my most important work done if I follow through on everything that's on my calendar? And, and it's about, you know, transferring things on my calendar and then using my calendars, that working document. So that's five minutes in the morning. And then I set my watch to beep, uh, one, uh, every hour for a minute. And in that minute, I pause and I breathe and I ask myself two questions. What do I most need to be doing right now? And who do I most want to be right now? Right? Or I might ask it in the other way. I might ask, am I doing what I most need to be doing right now? Am I being who I most want to be right now? And it's because it's so easy to get derailed throughout the day. So this is a way of pausing and asking ourselves the questions that can get us back uh, back on track from the tangents we may have allowed ourselves to go onto. I mean, you know, talking about a uh, YouTube video of a kitten, you, 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 you know, you set out to do something in the beginning of the hour and your watch beeps and that's what you're looking at, uh, uh, at the end of the hour. And you're like, wow, how did I get there? Don't even try to figure it out. Just get back on track. And then the last five minutes of the day is to sum it up and to ask yourself what worked and what didn't work. What do I want to do differently tomorrow? Is there anybody that I want to thank or give feedback to or connect with at the end of the day? So it sort of wraps up your day in a bow. It allows you to leave your work so that you can you know, be uh, uh, freed up to be with family or be the kind of human being you want to be uh, after work. And, and the whole thing takes about 18 minutes across the whole day. Well, it's always fun talking to you, I, I guess because I always like counterintuitive advice, and your advice makes so much sense, and yet it flies in the face of so much other advice that we hear. Thanks for coming on. Peter Bregman has been my guest. He is a consultant and speaker and author of several books, including Four Seconds, All the Time You Need to Replace the Counterproductive Habits with Ones That Really Work. And there's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Peter. Excellent. Thanks so much. It was really fun doing this with you. I always think of Halloween as the beginning of the holiday season in in the sense that once Halloween is over, then the Thanksgiving and Christmas holiday season can begin. But Halloween itself is a real holiday. People dress up, they celebrate, they spend money. And in some places, Halloween is a really big deal. Where I live in California, there's a street about a mile away from where I live that the people go all out. I mean, the the houses are decorated incredibly, and people come from all over the place to see this. And the street is packed. This one block of the street is packed wall-to-wall people every Halloween. So where did this all come from? What are the origins of Halloween, and how did it evolve into what it is now? Lisa Morton has been fascinated with Halloween for some time. She's written several books on the subject of Halloween and related topics, including the Halloween Encyclopedia. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for coming on. Hey, hi. It's great to be here. So where did Halloween begin? I've heard there are several things that influence what we now call Halloween. You wrote the Encyclopedia on Halloween. So where where did this all start? I think the real beginning of it is an ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. Um, And that was the Celts' um, New Year's celebration. So it was a day that they thought the veil between worlds 
Fields was at its thinnest, and they thought all kinds of things could cross over that through that veil on that night. And um, they believed in evil fairies called the She, and they thought that the dead could cross over. And so that's kind of where the holiday, I think, gets its um, sort of more macabre side. And then uh, when the Catholic Church came along and wanted to um, convert those Celts, so the holiday also has a little bit of the All Saints and um, All Souls Day, which the Catholic church added later on because they hadn't been completely successful in converting the Celts with November 1st. And All Souls Day is a little bit spooky, too, because it was a day that uh, people would pray for the souls of their loved ones trapped in purgatory. So the beginning of what we think of when we think of Halloween, when did that start? Probably around the 16th century. Um, that, I think, is the earliest references that I have found to it in terms of it being Halloween and not Samhain. Um, and the first few references that you can find to it are with parties, people celebrating. Um, bobbing for apples was a ritual that was in there right from the beginning. And then a little bit later on, you get a lot of the sort of um, telling ghost stories and fortune telling, that kind of thing. And when did the idea of trick-or-treat and the phrase trick-or-treat, and when did that all start? Oh, I, you know, this is funny because people think that trick-or-treat is very old. I hear this um, misconception a lot that it goes back to ancient Celtic practices, that the Druids dressed up. No, it really is less than 100 years old. It uh, began as an American custom. It came about in the late 1930s because up until that point in America, um, Halloween was being celebrated mainly by uh, young boys who would go out and play pranks on that night. And the pranks had become so destructive by the 1930s that a lot of cities were considering banning Halloween. And fortunately, some of them were smart enough to realize that they would have more success by buying off those prank players. So they created this idea of parties and costuming and rewarding the kids with treats for not going out and committing those tricks. And the idea of going door to door and saying trick or treat and expecting candy, that came when? We get the phrase trick or treat about 1927, and, and it actually started in Canada. But we don't get it combined with the whole you dress up in a costume, you go from door to door until really the late 30s. And um, even then, it took a while to, to spread all the way across the country. It kind of got interrupted by World War II because of uh, sugar rationing. And there just weren't a lot of treats to hand out. And then it really picks up and, and goes full throttle right after World War II. And that's when you get the companies coming in and saying, hey, mom, you don't have to bake treats for these kids anymore. Here's prepackaged candy. And you don't have to make their costumes anymore. Here are pre-made costumes. So I would imagine that Halloween was a big boon to the candy industry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gigantic. Before trick-or-treat, it was mainly in terms of candy uh, candy corn, which was invented around the turn of the last century. And um, there were some custom-made um, candy containers, which are now major collectibles. But the candy element didn't really come in until trick-or-treat. And then the companies like Hershey's and um, uh, they, these guys came in and just, you know, realized that this was a fortune to be made. Although my favorite story about Halloween retailing is beer, not candy. Um, because back in the early 1980s, the Coors Beer Company 
was looking around and going, gosh, we wish we had our own Super Bowl Sunday. They, they were lagging behind some of the other companies in beer sales. And they hit on the idea of Halloween. And up until then, Halloween hadn't really been promoted as like a major holiday for partying and beer consumption. And their first um, campaign did not do well. And then somebody was smart enough to say, hey, let's hire Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And I think they hired her in something like 1986, and their sales went insane. And now Halloween is one of the biggest uh, days of the year for beer consumption. And the idea of dressing up in costumes and masks and things, when, when did that really take hold? Yeah, the whole idea of costuming kind of goes back again to when people had to buy off these destructive pranksters who were costing cities a lot of money because they had moved into the cities, they were breaking light fixtures, they were starting fires. And so the um, this was the height of the Great Depression. People didn't have a lot of money to spend. So they would get together and they would do these things called house house parties. And the idea was that each house would contribute something different to the overall party. And the first house would usually give the kids a really simple costume. It would be like um, a sheet over their head to be a ghost, or maybe just even some suit smear it on their face, give them an old coat, they could be a hobo, that kind of thing. So that really um, is where the costuming part comes in. It was just something that kids always love to do at parties. And the first costumes were not necessarily always spooky. Like I said, they might be a pirate, they might be a hobo, um, they were occasionally a ghost, and sometimes they would even put on like a head-to-toe black leotard and be a like a demon kind of character. One thing I've always thought is interesting is that characters like Dracula and Frankenstein, they have their own very specific origins. They, they were books and movies, and, and yet somehow they've gotten all swept up into the whole Halloween thing. So how did that happen? Well, I think they um, it's probably a little bit fortunate coincidence that about the same time that Trick or Treat was starting to catch on was the heyday of the Universal Monster. So you kind of had the monsters coming into it a little bit from the 30s, but it really took off in the early 60s when they syndicated all of the Universal Monster films to television. And kids were seeing these things just playing endlessly on their television screens. And they started to merchandise the monsters more, too. There's a whole thing that happens about that time that um, the author David Scow called Monster Culture, which was uh, famous monsters of Filmland magazine and monster toys and monster costumes. So it really hit big in the 60s with the Universal Monsters. It does seem that Halloween has changed over the years, that... If you talk to people who were trick-or-treating in the 60s and the 70s, I mean, that trick-or-treating was a big deal. And, and I think some people would argue that Halloween has lost some of its magic. Would you agree? Well, I would argue that it is, isn't so much that it's lost, it is that it's moved it to different areas. Um, around the 1970s is when we start to see adults reclaiming the holiday. Um, I think maybe a lot of the baby boomers who grew up loving trick-or-treat um, decided to uh, get much more interested in things like haunted attractions and decorating their yards and so forth. And so now we have this gigantic haunted attractions um, industry, which is a multi-billion dollar a year thing. And um, also we have people who are doing it extravagant things with their yards um, and trick-or-treat has moved into a little bit 
more of a um, localized thing, I think you'd say. Like, for example, here in my part of Southern California, we have a couple of neighborhoods that are just unbelievably packed on Halloween night. All of the kids, their parents drive them to these neighborhoods. And I mean, you can't, you can barely make your way down a street walking and forget driving through some of these neighborhoods on Halloween night. So it seems like it's become the kind of thing where not everybody participates as they used to, which is too bad. But um, I think it still happens. It's just, like I said, it has shifted a little bit more to the adult um, part of the consumer business, and it's shifted a little bit more to these regionalized areas. In doing all the research you've done on Halloween, are there things that that you find particularly interesting or that other people find particularly interesting when you tell them about the holiday that may, maybe we don't know? I always like to talk about some of the contemporary urban legends. Um, you know, the, the notion, for example, of... Um, uh, poison candy or razor blades in the apples is really an urban legend. The truth is that there are almost no recorded incidents of anonymous psychos poisoning kids' candy. Um, the That particular urban legend dates back to a guy in the 70s named O'Brien who was trying to, to kill his own kid and put arsenic in a pixie stick. Um, so, so while it's probably a good idea to make sure that your kids' candies and so forth are safe on Halloween night, the truth is that that really is not a widespread problem. And yet you would think that's probably so, has something to do with why fewer and fewer kids go trick-or-treating because of this scare of razor blades and poison, which, as you point out, virtually doesn't even exist. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure that plays into it, yeah. I always think of Halloween as a, as a very American holiday or, or North American holiday. Is it, it or is Halloween something that's celebrated around the world, at least in, in some form or another? Well, that's a that's a really good question to, to close on, because um, I have seen it evolve gigantically just in the 15 years or so that I've been really researching it. 15 years ago, it was almost exclusively American with a little bit in Canada and the UK. It is now spread all over the world. I mean, just that fast. It is celebrated in almost every country in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, the Southern Hemisphere, of course, the seasons are reversed, so they don't have this sort of seasonal association of pumpkins and harvest and all that, but it is catching on there now as well, and it's been amazing to watch it spread to places like mainland China. Um, and one of the stories I read that I uh, that I just loved about why it was popular in mainland China was that they have a uh, celebration there called the Hungry Ghost Festival, which uh, honors the uh, spirits of their deceased loved ones who return home for a few days, and usually it's July. And um, a lot of the young people are genuinely frightened by the Hungry Ghost Festival. I mean, they don't like the idea that, you know, Grandpa Ed is now coming in the front door. Um, so they really loved Halloween because it represents the sort of fun side of being scared without this sort of literal, oh, the ghost are coming home thing. It's always interesting and fun to hear the backstory of, well, of, of any holiday, because now knowing what you've explained, I think it makes celebrating the holiday more interesting and, and more fun. Lisa Morton has been my guest. She is a 
Halloween expert of sorts. She's written several books on the subject and related topics, and one of her books is called The Halloween Encyclopedia. And you will find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for coming on, Lisa. Hey, thanks a lot. This was really fun. While Halloween is the time of year to be scared of lots of things, there are some things that people are afraid of that you shouldn't be. And here are just a couple. For example, that big hairy spider on the wall is going to jump on you. Well, it's not. Spiders don't jump, they crawl, except for one or two species that live in the forest. Spiders are never inclined to come after people. People are often afraid that some crazy person will push them onto the train tracks at a railroad station. Well, in 2009, out of 34 million passenger trips, only 17 people died, including those people who fell on the tracks by accident. A train platform is actually a very safe place to be. People are afraid that they'll be struck by lightning if they carry an umbrella or a smartphone in their hand during a storm. Well, metal does not attract lightning, despite what people think. So if you get struck, it's because you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it has nothing to do with what you're holding in your hand. And people are often afraid of elevators. For example, if it bounces when it stops at your floor, people think there's something wrong and it's going to plummet. Well, it won't. Elevators don't fail. There are too many fail-safes in place. And that is something you should know. You can reach me anytime at my email address with questions or comments or whatever you like. My email address is mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. And do me a favor, share this podcast with a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.